Are you there? 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 16. I want to dive right in tonight because we got a lot of content to cover. But first, 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, chapter 18, verse, starting in verse 16. Let's begin. It says, So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Now, Obadiah is this guy that has... Uh, dual affections. He likes Elijah, but he works for Ahab. And if you remember the last time we talked about Elijah and Ahab, they had a confrontation and Elijah declared a drought um, in, in Ahab's face, basically. But they have another confrontation here in chapter 18. But we keep reading. This is what it says, verse 17. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I have made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers. For you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. That's going to be an important statement tonight. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of the people and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bowls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish cut it into pieces and laid on the altar of their uh, on their altar but without setting fire to it i will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood on the altar but not set fire to it either then call on the name of your god and i will call on the name of the lord and the god who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true god and all the people agreed that's an important statement look at verse 25 Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call in the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar. And then they called in the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. But about noontime, Elijah, I love this, began mocking them. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming or he's relieving himself. You can just let your imagination go to what he's saying there. Or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Then Elijah called the people to him, come over here. And they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. And he took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. And then he said, fill four large jars with water pour the water over the offering and the wood. After they had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said. And the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. Now at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today 
that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all that is at your command. Oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, oh Lord, are God, that you have brought them back to yourself. Look at verse 38. Here it comes. You ready? Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when people saw it, they fell face down. Got on their faces. That's what they said. The Lord, He is God. Yes, the Lord, He is God. Amen? Amen. This is an amazing scene, an epic fight, but What I want to talk to you about today is that there's something else that is going on deeper in this. And so the title of my message today is simply this, the battle underneath the battle, the battle that goes underneath the battle. Now, before you sit down, this is what I want you to do. I want you to turn to two people, okay, and welcome them this way. I want you to look at them and say, all right, put up your dukes. And then I just want you to do double fist pump. Can you do that to two people? All right, greet each other. Put up your dukes, double fist pump as we we begin our, 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 the message tonight. doesn't love a good battle? Come on, let's be honest tonight. Who doesn't love a good battle? All right, so there's some battles that we don't actually like. I've actually been battling this week quite a bit. I'll be completely vulnerable with you and honest with you. I've been battling a condition called circadian dysrhythmia. I just was diagnosed a few days ago with it, and some of you are saying, man, that sounds serious. I'm going to add you to my prayer list, Pastor Seth. That's crazy, right? Um, That's just the technical term for jet lag, and let me tell you, uh, jet lag is awful. It's horrible. And so um, I don't know what time zone I'm in right now or what city I'm in, but I'm here tonight and I'm excited to preach to this. But don't you love battles, right? Because battles, they provide drama. And who doesn't love drama, right? I mean, just think about it. Every TV show that you probably like and that you watch it has some sort of battle attached to it. I mean, who's going to win the last leg of The Amazing Race? Hmm? Who's going to be the next master chef? Who's going to win the final rose? Hmm. Right? We see it in movies as well, don't we? The Fellowship versus Sauron, right? Skywalker versus Vader, Star Wars fans out there. Yeah, it's awesome. But probably my, my favorite thing is sports. Sports is nothing but just a grudge match. It's a battle, is it not? I mean, Tyson versus Holyfield, the Red Sox versus the Yankees, the Canadians versus the Maple Leafs, the New England Patriots versus basically everyone else, right? Um, I mean, I I gotta say, I mean, you've probably heard this a thousand times, but did you guys watch that game last week? I mean, that was, what a battle that was. And I'm not even lying to you, I lost hope. I did. I lost a lot of hope. I, we were, I was here at the Super Bowl party that was happening here at the church. And, and about the third quarter when my team, my, my boys were getting pummeled, um, I, I turned to Pastor Brent because, by the way, I, I really felt outnumbered. There was only one person there that supported me. It was Pastor Brent. Thanks, bro. I appreciate that. But about the third quarter, I said, Brent, if, I'm, if my team is going to lose, I, I don't want to be in your arms, I want to be in the arms of my wife. 
So I'm going to go home, and I'm just going to cry there. And he said, sounds good. And so he goes home, and so, of course, we go home. My, I walk in. My, my wife's not even watching the game anymore. She says, honey, do you want to watch? I said, no, I don't, think I, can, I don't think I can bear it. She goes, Seth, you just need to watch till the end. I said, okay. And so, and of course, you all saw the result, right? There is good in the world. Good prevailed, right? And it's just an amazing battle. But, but as many of you know, what you see in a battle is, is what you see on television. But some of you need to know that there's also battles that happen behind the battle, right? There are things that you see are happening, but there are other battles that are happening in the unseen as well. Let's just use football as, as, as an example for a moment. When you watch football on television, what you see is you see uh, two teams that just want to kill each other. You know, one team is on defense, the other team is trying to, to score a touchdown, and what we see is just this intense battle going on in the field. But if you were to add up all the action time in an entire football game, did you know that it only takes about 10 minutes to play the entire game, if you added up all the action, action parts, I mean, that's the kicking, that's the passing, that's the running. If you're a Patriots fan, that's the winning. You know, you're watching that, that action that is taking place. It only takes about 10 minutes, which means that most of the battle, or maybe even the real battle, is the one that is happening behind the battle. You ever, you ever watch football? There's a lot of huddles, isn't there? A lot of guys moving before the snap. There's a lot of scheming going on. Did you know that the, the real battle happens before the ball is even snapped in a football game? Many people say that football is a chess game before it actually becomes a football game. There's a battle that is going behind the battle. In fact, some of us might say that that's where the real battle is taking place. And in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is a picture that we are seeing. We're, we, what we see is that we see Ahab, we see Ahab versus Elijah. We see Baal versus God. And to the naked eye, you would, you would think after we read the story in the context, you would think that actually Baal has the advantage. Let's just think about this for a moment. First and foremost, Baal has 450 prophets. God has one prophet. And not only does it say that Baal comes with 450 prophets, it also says that there are 400 prophets of Asherah. And in that day, Asherah was known as the sister to Baal, all right? So this, this, this scene is a family reunion, right? Everyone is there, and I don't know about you, but you get to, how many of you go to family reunions and you just want to kill each other, right? Well, this is a good one because you don't have to kill, you get to kill someone else. Right? And so, so Elijah is there with 850 family members. Uh, and so there's an advantage in the numbers, but there's also an advantage in the place. Mount Carmel would be like home field advantage for these prophets of Baal. Mount Carmel, actually the name Carmel means garden. It's lush. It's beautiful. It's got uh, just trees everywhere. And for a god known as the fertility god, which is the the god who brings plants and and trees and fruit and harvest, Carmel is the perfect place, is it not? And so they have home field advantage. They have more prophets. They also get to go first. There's not even a coin toss. 
Elijah just kind of looks at them and says, all right, boys and girls, how about you guys go first? And it seems as though that Baal has the advantage. Remember, church, that they have been in a drought for three years. The, the ground couldn't be drier. And Baal, who is said to, if you saw an image of Baal, it is said that he has a lightning bolt in his right hand. That this should be a victory for Baal. I mean, come on, take a picture, write it down. We're going to Disney World. It's all over, right? And so from the naked eye, it seems as though that, that Baal has the advantage here. That this is a great opportunity for them, but this, could, this couldn't be a better setup for Elijah. Because you see, if we think that what we see is that this is a battle between God and Baal, then this battle is over before it even starts. For one very, very giant reason. And it's this. Because God never loses. Never loses. Let me put it this way for you. He can't lose. He can't lose. I mean, if we were to read the scriptures of how God took uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt, each of those plagues that God brought was actually an assault on every one of the Egyptians' gods. And if God can defeat the gods of Egypt, then he can defeat Baal. So this is not a match between God and Baal. And if God and Jesus doesn't even lose to death, there isn't anything that can stop him, right? Right? This is not a battle between God and Baal. Let me say it this way. If God had to battle, then that would mean he he would have to struggle. But God doesn't struggle. God is infinite. And because God is infinite, there is nothing else like him. And so he has no rival. He has no equal. He has no challenger. God knows no bounds. He can't be measured. He can't be sized up. Baal can have all the advantages that he wants but still no match to God. Doesn't it make sense now what Paul says to us in the New Testament? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Some of you are going through some things right now. You're going through some struggles. And the, the thing is, is that sometimes we think that our struggles are a, that we are battling with, we may be battling with them, but we, say, we often think, well, God is battling with this, but God isn't battling with them. He can't be, because God doesn't struggle. He's bigger than those circumstances. Some of us need to be reminded of that today. But this is, if, if it was between God and Baal, the battle is over before it even starts. But the real battle, and I don't want to show you this in the text today, the battle behind the battle lies not with God, but with the people. The real battle here is worship. I mean, isn't this what Elijah is provoking to the people in the first place? Look at verse 21 again with me. This is what it says is, how much longer, this is Elijah speaking to the people of Israel, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal is God, then follow him. I want you to see it. This is where the real battle is. And can I be honest with you? Uh, Is there not a constant pull by forces outside of us for our affections, for our desires, for our passion, for our 
worship, and God knows that this is a battle for us. In fact, Jesus talks about this in the New Testament. He says this in the book of Matthew. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. The apostle James says it this way, in almost the same way he would say it this way. He would say, a double-minded person is unstable in all of his ways, and when the conditions are unstable, you're in a battle, aren't you? You know, this is one of the reasons I believe that worship is a true answer to the problems in our world. I want you to think about this for a moment, right? Let your mind go there today. And here's why I believe this. It's a true answer because that's where the battle is. Aren't battles fought on disputed territory? Aren't battles often fought... uh, in, in, for something that is significant, whether it's land, whether it's for women, whether it's for people's rights. Battles, when you win them or lose them, they will change the world. Just winning, and lose, winning or losing just describes the way it's going to change. Think about this for a moment. What, what would have happened to the world if the Axis forces had beaten the Allies in World War II? The world would have changed, wouldn't it? What if, what if but think about this. What if the world worshipped God and not something else. The world would change, would it not? And maybe some of you are there today and you're saying, Seth, really, really worship? Yep. And here's why I believe this is a battleground. And you can write this down if you want. It's because of this. I believe this. Everyone worships. Do you know that? Worship is primal to our existence, and it's also primal to our our survival. Here's why. Because God created us to worship. If we were to look back in the book of Genesis, we're not going to turn there tonight. We don't have the time to go there and unpack it. But if we were to go back there, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. But when he formed Adam and he placed him in the Garden of Eden, God told him to do two things. He told him that he needed to work the ground and that he needed to take care of the ground. And that word work in the, in the book of Genesis, the Hebrew word, is the word abad. And that word abad is also not only the word used for work, it's also used for the word Worship. In other words, God created you to worship. It's primal to your existence. It's primal to your survival. Listen, worship isn't just us singing a few songs on the weekend. Worship is what we are doing with the entirety of our lives. And because you've been created to worship, you are going to worship whether you want to or not. You don't get to pick or choose to worship. It's part of your DNA. Every person that walked in here today, every person at East, and everyone who's watching on a screen right now, every single person worships. You do have a God. Whether you you have identified him or not, that is a different question. But every person will allow something or someone to sit on the throne of their lives. And here's something I know to be true. The person that sits on the throne of your life will set the tone of your life. I mean, is this not the constant battle that our world lives in, that we constantly live in? I mean, who is the king of your heart? And this is what the people of Israel battled with. It's the battle behind the battle. But what I want to really spend the rest of our time with today is I, I, really, want to, I want to, really want to answer two questions. And here, here are the questions. The first one is this. What does the battle look like? 
What does this battle that we're facing look like? What does the battle of worship look like? And here's the second thing. How can it be won? How can it be one? I think that's a fair question to ask. And the scripture actually shows us this, and I can't wait to dive into this. So we're going to have to, we're digging deep, all right? I want you to see some things that aren't necessarily there in the, in the text, but they are there. And I just, I'm excited about this. So what does the battle look like? And I want you to notice here uh, the exchange that has taken place between Elijah and Ahab for just a moment. Now, you know that Elijah and Ahab, and the last time we, we talked about Elijah in, in chapter 16, they have a confrontation, and they have another confrontation here, and, and Ahab sees Elijah coming in the distance, and he says, he says, there you are, you troublemaker of Israel. And look what Elijah says in, in, in verse 22. He says, you are the troublemaker. I just think that's funny. That's a terrible comeback, Elijah. I mean, they're like kids. You know what I mean? You're the trouble. No, you're the troublemaker, right? So he says, you are the troublemaker because you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal. This is an enormous statement, all right? Let me read it again. You have worshipped the images of Baal. That word image is a, means a representation of something or someone. But here's where I believe the battle is for worship. Are you ready for this? It's in this. Some people prefer images over reality. Some people prefer images over reality. And I don't mean to be crass today, but this is why pornography is so popular is it not why because an image is customizable I can do what I want with an image I can use my imagination and that image can do for me what I want it to do but images aren't just customizable they're also impersonal they are impersonal images are a way of dealing with God without actually having to deal with God. I mean, I mean uh, with an image, we are in control. Even in, the, in, in having an image of, even of God himself, we are cutting him down to size to make him more manageable. Images make God domesticated. You see, this is why this altar is so appealing. It's because at this altar, God can do for me what I want him to do for me. This is a place where God is worshipped so that I can feel good. At the, at the, at the altar of of Baal over here. This is where what matters most is not the otherness of God. What matters most is the experience of the worshiper. Baal is a worship. It is a God who allows you to do what you want with him. You see, Baal worship is based upon what you experience. And if you experience it is good, then you stay with it. But if it's not, you can change an image. You know, this doesn't just happen with God. It also happens in our normal relationships. Every time I sit down with couples to do marriage counseling with them, I ask them, this is my first question I ask them. I look at them both, the spouses-to-be, and I say, do you love that person? Now, that seems like a general question. And most, most of the time, everyone says, yes. Yes, we do. And I say, well, let me ask a follow-up question for you. I, I didn't, I asked you, do you love that person, not do you love how you feel when you're with that person? It's two different questions. And at this altar, it's predicated upon experiences and feelings and emotions. But the altar that Elijah builds over here 
it's not predicated upon experience. Catch this. It's predicated upon an encounter. An encounter. You see, over here, you can scream, you can dance, you can yell all you want. You can put on quite a show if you want to, but that's not the fire. Fire, church, is not an experience. It's an, it's an encounter. And when the fire comes, listen, it's not fireworks. Fire in the scriptures has always been represented by the presence of God. I mean, even just look what the people say when the fire actually does come. What do they do? They hit the deck and they don't say, hey, God, thanks for the fireworks today. What a great show you're putting on. No, they see the fire come and they said, oh, Lord, we see your presence. Oh, Lord, you are God. They have an encounter with the living God. You see, at this altar, we don't worship and experience. We have an encounter and worship is what we do as a result of that encounter we have to have a worshipful encounter before we have a worshipful experience it's not the other way around and some of us maybe you're here for the first time today and you're looking around and say well it seems like everyone's having a great experience here their hands are lifted high they're singing at the top of their lungs let me just tell you those people have had an encounter with the living God so that they can worship him it's not the other way around Worship isn't a cosmetic. Worship is the second part of a transaction in a a relationship with a holy king. I mean, just notice, even with Elijah, just the way he deals with with his altar. It doesn't say that he comes over. He doesn't dance. He doesn't doesn't shout. he He just walks over, and he just prays. And when he prays, it says that the fire comes because at this altar over here, the center of authentic worship is not performance. It's the word. Worship is a response to the word. It isn't just an experience. Worship is actually what we do, regardless of how we feel about it or whether we feel anything about it at all. Worship is defined and shaped by how God has revealed himself to us by his word. Notice the difference between how the prophets of Baal address their God and how Elijah addresses his God. What do they say over here? Oh, Baal, answer us. That's all they say. And then they start dancing, you know. But over here, did you hear what Elijah said? He said, oh, Lord, the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob. You see, the God at this altar has history. This God at this altar over here has, has, has made a covenant with his people in the past. This is a God who has made promises and he's kept them time and time again. This is a God who has spoken in the past. This is a God who's already come in fire a bunch already. This is a God who keeps appearing and showing up time and time again. This is a God who reveals himself in, 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 in the fire. This is his presence that we're talking about. And so the real battle, the real worship battle is not in worship preference it's in worship posture and if we're going to see our city if we're going to see our region if we're going to see an entire nation transformed and worship is the answer to all of that it will because we as the church are willing to invoke and lift up the name of one who encounters us as God but how does this happen right how is this battle won? Maybe a better question is this. How do, how do people stop worshiping at this altar? 
and they start worshiping at this altar. How does that happen? How does God transform the worship of an entire nation? Because he does it right here. And I have three things that I want to give you in order for that to happen. The first one is this. And you can write this down if you'd like. The first one is this. Agreement. We must be in agreement. Look at verse 22 with me. It says this. And Elijah said to them, I am the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood of of, of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set a fire to, to it. Then call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And catch this phrase, it's so important. Listen to this. And all the people agreed. You know, this tiny tic-tac of a statement is loaded. <laughs> All the people agreed. It really requires an entire sermon to kind of unpack that just one tiny statement, which we don't have time for today. But let me say this. I believe that the fire came to the altar not just because Elijah prayed, but also because the people agreed. A true encounter with God for you or for anybody else, cannot happen unless there is agreement together. I mean, Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. He says this. He says, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For, here it is, for where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. But here's what I know to be true, church. The power is not in the people who are agreeing. The power is in the agreement of the people. I mean, let's just think about it. I mean, these, guys, these guys are totally not perfect people, are they? No. I mean, they've been worshiping a different God. They might, they might not even know what they are agreeing upon. But yet God, and it's just, he just honors their agreement. Why? Because it is God who restores people to the kingdom, not us. And here's what I believe. I believe that if we're... If, we begin to agree together with God on the state and posture of worship for our city, our region, our nation, God will do it. Will he not? God will will do it. God will bring together everyone around his altar to an encounter with him. Do you believe that? We've got to agree together. That's the first principle. Here's the second principle. I gotta, I gotta speed it up here. We need adjustment. Adjustment. We need adjustments. And we need adjustment in two areas. Here's the first area. We first need an adjustment in our pipeline. And I'm gonna explain that in just a second. But look at verse 30 with me. It says, Then Elijah called to the people, Come over here. They all crowded around him. Catch this now. As he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones. You're gonna have to remember that one to represent each tribe, each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Notice something. Elijah doesn't build a new altar. He just makes adjustments to an older one. 
Now, some people uh, believe, some of the scholars believe that what, what, what this, old, this altar was at one time was formed in the time of the judges. Do you remember the time of the judges, Gideon and Deborah and Samson? There was a time before the prophets, and it was the judges. And at one time, the, the people of Israel, when they were worshiping God in their lands, they would set up altars on high places all across the nation. This is where you get in Psalm 121. You know the psalmist, some of you might know this. It says this, I look to the, il- the hills where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It's because the psalmist is walking a road and what he sees on the high places are these altars to the Lord. And an altar is an, is an important thing, but he, he's repairing a decommissioned altar. And the reason they're so important is because these are places where divine and human worlds interacted. It's the pipeline. Right? It's the plot. Altars are a place of exchange, communication, influence, and even places of sacrifice. And, and many people worship around altars. This one time, I took a trip to Honduras. And uh, when I was in Honduras, there, we took a trip to uh, this Mayan Indian ruin. And uh, this, they had this round altar there. And they also had this like weird sort of formation uh, with two walls and on, on each side, and they had rings on these walls. And the guide that was telling the guide that was there was telling us that they would play a game. Two people would get in this kind of ring, and they would play a game. They would battle it out right here. And the and the object was that they could only use their feet and their head. They couldn't use their hands. Kind of like soccer. It's kind of like soccer and basketball. And so what they would do is they would play a game. I don't know what the up to what score, maybe twenty one or seven or whoever, whatever. But they would have to try to kick or or head the ball into those rings. And the winner, get this, this is crazy, took the loser over to the altar and sacrificed him there. I mean, it was a way, that was their way of, of kind of looking at, at God, but, but the world has always built altars, have they not? There's always been something inside of us that says, hey, there's, there's something bigger than us out there, and, and, and we need to have some sort of an exchange. And so altars have always been that place, and God always responded to altar activity in the scriptures. However, the state of your altar was always the state of your relationship to God. And so if your altar was crumbling, it meant that your relationship to God was crumbling. But even further than that, if your relationship to God is crumbling, then your entire life was crumbling. When worship crumbles in your life, the rest of your life will follow. And so it says that Elijah prepares, he repairs, he fixes, he makes adjustments to this pipeline. And we need those adjustments too. But what does it say? It says Elijah did something. He took 12 stones and he rebuilt the altar with 12 stones. Now, I want you to just remember that. Keep that filed back in the back of your brain for just a moment. I'm going to recall that in just a second. How many stones were there? 12. Good. You guys are all listening. Thank goodness. That's good. All right. Here's the second thing we need adjustment on. The first is the pipeline. The second is priorities. It's priorities. Look what it continues to say. It says, then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering and the wood. And and they had done this. After they had done this, he said, do the same again. This is odd. And when they were finished, he said, now do it a third time. So they did as he said. And the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Now this is a really strange 
pictured. I'm going to tell you what's happening here in just a moment. But before we do, can we do a little bit of math? What did, uh, Elijah said, take four jars, and he said, pour it on the altar how many times? Three. That was four times three. Twelve. Not, keep that number there. How many stones were there? Twelve. Good. You guys are sharp tonight. It's awesome. We're going to talk about that number in just a second. Just hang tight. But I want to talk about this water for a second because this is a really strange thing. But there's a beautiful thing that is happening. And I want you to see this. And I don't want you to miss this because it's a huge principle. And before we get into the water, i got to ask a question. Where did the water come from? Where did the water come from? Let me, let me remind you that there is still drought in the land. The streams are dried up. The springs are dried up. So where in the world would they get the water from? Here's what I believe. I believe that when Elijah asked the people to bring water to the altar, they had to take the water out of their personal canteens. And they had to pour it on the altar. Now, now some of you are saying, oh, that's weird. Now, let me, let me say this, okay? In a time of drought, the most prized possession to a person is the water in their canteen, is it not? God has a right to our most prized possessions. Not because he's greedy, but because our most prized possessions are his anyways. You know in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, if you read through that that book, you'll see that God is constantly asking the people to bring their first fruits to him or their firstborn to him. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, come and give me your first. He says, come and bring me your first. And that's an important statement because you can't give what doesn't belong to you, right? And so he says, bring me your first fruits. And here's something I know to be true. Your first is always your most prized possession, is it not? Think about it in their day. I mean, when you had, when you grew things and, and the first of your crop and, and, or if you had like goats or cows or whatever, the first, the first was always the most important because if you brought the first, you didn't know if you were going to get any others. And so the first always required the most faith to give. It was the most prized possession. But let's be honest with us. We hold very tightly to the things that are the most prized possessions to us. Do we not? We don't let them go very easily. Maybe it's our money, our job, our ego. Maybe it's our sense of righteousness or entitlement. But if the fire is going to come, we have to be willing to pour out our most prized possessions. And some of you might be saying, man, that's hard because my most prized possession is tied to my identity. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Um, But listen, you won't encounter God until you're willing to humble yourself to release your most prized possession. But here's something else I know to be true. Your most prized possession is nothing compared to what God has in store for you. Because when the people pour out their water, on the altar, we're not going to cover this today, but in a couple verses later, God will part the heavens, and the rain will come. If God can bring a drought, then God can also bring the rain, but you have to be willing to make the adjustments. 
We have to have an adjustment in the pipeline, our altar. How many stones were there? Twelve. We have to have an adjustment in our priorities. We have to pour the, the water out of our canteens. Do we not? How many jars of water were there? Twelve, right? Now, you've said twelve a bunch of times, but the number of twelve is a very important number because in the scriptures, the number twelve always signified the power and the authority of God, particularly in reestablishing the order and completeness of a nation. Think about that for a moment. So what God is doing is that God in a time of worship is restoring a nation. That worship has the, the power, believe it or not, to take back ground. Isn't that powerful? Here's the third thing I want you to know. You've got to live in authority. You've got to live in the power and the authority that God has given us in worship. We not only need just, uh, we don't need just to agree. We don't just need adjustments. This might be the most important thing, but we need to live in authority. Look at verse 36. It says, at the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Oh, Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you are Lord and and God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Look what he's doing. He's stepping into a place of authority. He's stepping in a place of power around the altar. And it says, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and it burned up the bowl, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water, your most prized possession. It's gone. And when all the people saw it, what did they do? They hit, they, they hit their face to the deck. Oh, Lord, they said. The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. The encounter comes and worship happens. Listen, worship at the altar, at this altar, brings the power and the authority of God into our lives. It also has the power to take back ground. Did you know that? That worship has the power to take back ground. To make it complete. Twelve jars of water. Twelve stones. Now, did anyone catch on what the twelve stones represent? The tribes of Israel, right? Now, the tribes of Israel at this time are disunified. But now they, they're in agreement. Now they are being adjusted And now they're in a place to receive the authority of God. Do you know that on that day, all but two tribes would have been present to see the fire of God? One of those tribes was a tribe by the name of Asher. Some of you are like, this is getting weird. Why are you talking about this crazy tribe, right? But let me just tell you something about the tribe of Asher. The the names of of the tribes are are different. There's the tribe of Benjamin. There's the tribe of Manasseh. There's the tribe of Judah. There's all these different tribes. But on that day, there was this one tribe. It was the tribe of Asher. Now, why is that so important? Let me tell you why. When God brought the people into the promised land, and he said, this is your land, take it. I'm giving you the authority and the power to take it. The tribe of Asher was allotted the land that contained Mount Carmel. That was their land. But they never had full possession of it. It was always disputed land for them. 
you read the history, there was always fighting going on in this, in this region over this particular land. Now, let me ask you this. Asher, let me say this, Asher would have been there that day when the fire came. They also would have been at the, at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem when the temple was built and Solomon was there and he prayed that prayer. All of Israel would have been there and they would have seen the fire fall then, but now Asher is there and they see God fall on their land. How would you feel if God was falling on your land? that the unrivaled, undisputed God has now come onto your disputed land. There's no more disputes anymore. That land is yours. It belongs to you. It's yours. At this altar, God takes back ground. God comes to this altar. He comes to this mountain. And some of you are here today and you're wondering, can God ever take back ground? Maybe it's the ground in your heart. Some of you may have been, been praying for God to take back ground in your family. We've all been praying for God to take back ground in our region. And you're wondering, can the fire fall on our land? Can God win this thing? Can God do this thing? And I want to just say with a resounding voice, yes, he can. And let me tell you why, church. Because God has sent a bolt of lightning, a flash from heaven in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is not an image he is God. Paul says this in the New Testament. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. Isn't that amazing? God has already consumed the altar for you and I with his son. Scripture says, and we sang it in the song, in the song, the Revelation song. The, 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 the scripture says that it was that the lamb has been slain. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was taking back ground that had been given over to sin. He was taking back ground that was given over to death. He was taking back ground that had been given over when the people were worship, worshiping an image rather than the real thing. Listen, and God himself, the son does not just pour out water on the altar. He poured out his own blood. His most prized possession And he agreed to do it. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18 says, My father loves me. This is Jesus speaking. Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to do it. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Listen, we come to this altar, and we don't have to perform anymore. We don't. We just come and receive we encounter. Maybe today this is not the tribe of Asher. This is you. And you want to know if God can come. And you want to know if the fire can come. And it has come. 
you can receive it today. If you're here today and you've never received the fire, you've never encountered Jesus, it's the greatest encounter you'll ever have in your life. And he is here today. And I want to provide an opportunity for you to encounter him. Maybe God is working in your heart. Maybe you feel a little bit of something going on inside of you. That's, that's the Holy Spirit working in your heart right now. And God is calling you out. And he's saying, listen, I know the ground in your life has been taken, but I can take it back. In a few minutes, we're going to have our prayer team come. And, and if you're here today, and this is something that God is stored in your heart, I want you to come and I want you just to, just to come pray with some of these folks. They're going to love on you. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be ashamed of this either. either God is, celebrates this stuff. We celebrate this stuff. I mean, you want to see this place come alive? Respond to Jesus. But there's another thing that I want to suggest to you today, and it's this. I want to also invite us corporately to be partners with God in bringing the fire to our world. We live in disputed land, church. But God has called us to be carriers of the fire. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, he says this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. And then he says this, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that. And so maybe today, this is not the tribe of Asher. That's King's Church, the Valley Campus. Maybe this isn't the tribe of Benjamin. That's King's Church East. Maybe this isn't the tribe of Judah. That's King's Church West. And maybe, maybe this over here is not the tribe of Manasseh. This is King's Church, Halifax. And God is wanting to consume us and bring the fire on us so that we can carry it. Listen, God wants to bring the fire not just here but out there. And I want to invite you, maybe God is stirring in your heart that you just want a renewal of the fire to God, of God to come in your life corporately together as we represent a tribe of now growing churches across this region. And join with me, join with me, church, in praying that, oh God, that we would have an encounter with you. And that encounter would just spill over to the public square and the public eye, to the businesses, the places, your neighborhoods. That there's maybe for tonight or today, this is a commissioning moment for some of you. So I want to pray in that vein. Can we do that? Would you stand with me today? Father, I pray today that the fire would come on this altar. That you would reestablish it that we would agree together that that is the only thing that we ever desire, Lord, is not to just to have an experience. It's not about performance. It's not about how the people of Baal worship, God. It is about having an encounter. And because of an encounter, God, we worship you. But, oh God, if this is the answer, 
to a disputed land and to a disputed nation and to a disputed world that the enemy wants to take hold of, God, then please lead us into a, a place and a direction, Lord. Would you commission us? Would you commission us to be people of the fire, to be carriers of the fire? And maybe today there are people here who have never experienced the fire. Pray that they would have the courage to go from this altar to this one. That they may encounter you, the real and living and powerful, present God in Jesus Christ. We lift up your name. We thank you. We come to your altar now in Jesus' name.